of Owens Mountain. Uh, the top of this mountain, it, more like a really tall hill, is almost exactly five miles away from my house. I know this because three weeks ago I hiked to the top of Owens Mountain. And when I exercise, I most often listen to sermons or books or podcasts or research for whatever series I'll be preparing for. And a couple weeks ago when I hiked to the top of Owens Mountain, I was preparing for this specific series. And there was something so powerful about listening to the book of Leviticus, uh, the people of God at the mountain of God. And on the way up, I found some bones, okay? I think they're bones from a cow, but I can't be sure. I'm not a forensic anthropologist. Uh, and yes, I had to Google what that was. But seeing the bones of an animal while listening to a book uh, with so much animal sacrifice in it, it just hits different. And when I finally made it to the top of the mountain, I looked around at the beautiful view and I spent some time up there praying. Uh, praying for me, praying for my family, praying for you. And I did not have a supernatural moment with God. And at the very same time, I had a supernatural moment with God. Let me explain. Nothing crazy happened. There was no fire from heaven that consumed a sacrifice that I offered. I received no divine instruction or vision. Yet nonetheless, I communed with God. I spoke with him. I walked with him. He was with me, whether I knew it or not. And the ground that I walked on was holy ground. And that is nonetheless supernatural. I am profoundly grateful that I can commune with God, communicate with God in this way. It's something that I take for granted, and I would venture to say that it is something that you also take for granted. Talking and walking with God in freedom without the need of sacrificing bulls or rams or birds or goats or bread or have a priest to talk to God for you. At the very least, I hope that as we wrestle through the book of Leviticus, that we can appreciate this, that 3,500 years ago, the people of God had to offer sacrifices and rituals and offerings and go through someone else just to commune with God, but now we have access to him all the time. You, me, everyone. We can talk to him. He can talk to us. It's beautiful. And welcome to week two of our series through You Lost Me at Leviticus. We have this saying in our culture that a picture is worth what? A thousand words. Uh, and the ancient Israelites were a picture people. They were image-oriented. They relied heavily on pictures, symbols, rituals to tell a story. In contrast that with our Western culture, we are very word-oriented, logic-oriented. We use words to prove a point, to create lists, have equations. Not so in ancient Israel. They would never try and explain something by making a detailed list and then connect the dots and definitions in a very logical manner. No, no, they would use a symbol or a picture and then they would say, yeah, it's like that. Okay, that's how you understand complexity. Uh, 
So when you read the Bible, when you read the boring parts of the Bible, know that it is painting a picture. It's using symbols that point to something or point to someone. And so let's start uh, our sermon series of the Old Testament book of Leviticus with a New Testament book of Hebrews. Now you can't understand Hebrews without Leviticus and you can't understand Leviticus without Hebrews. So turn your Bibles to chapter 10 of Hebrews. It says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. What a great verse. There's so much in it, and we'll get into some of it again later, but the law is a shadow. The law is a shadow. I have a shadow. You can discern certain things about me from my shadow. You can learn a bit about my size and my build. You can probably learn about my hair or lack thereof. You can see how active I am, if I'm coordinated or not, okay? You can know certain things about me from my shadow. But if someone came up to you and asked, do you know John Richardson? And you answered that question with, well, I've met his shadow before. They would think that you're crazy. A shadow, you might know a few things, but you don't know me. In Hebrews 10, that is what God is saying about the system of blood sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. It's a shadow. We can learn some things about God from the law, but it's all revealed in Christ. The shadow isn't the point. The system isn't the point. The sacrifice isn't the point. The rituals aren't the point. It's a shadow. It points to something greater. It's a picture, and it's worth more than a thousand words. Well, what does it point to? What's the symbol it is saying? What is the picture being painted? Well, let's read and find out. And today, we're going to look at some of the sacrifices found in the book of Leviticus. So buckle up. There's quite a few of them, okay? Chapter one, the burnt offering. This is your catch-all offering, okay? You can offer burnt offerings just to say, thanks, God. You're awesome today. I, I love you. You didn't do anything wrong. It's kind of just because. In chapter two, we see the grain offering. This is a thank you. Thank you for the wheat harvest. And so here's some wheat back. It's also a royal tribute in the ancient world. Chapter three is the fellowship offering. It's the thank you, the praise offering. Now, these first three uh, in the book of Leviticus, they're optional, okay? The ones that follow, they're not optional, okay? Sin offering and guilt offerings, uh, these are you have to kind of things. So chapter four, we have the sin offering. Chapter five, still the sin offering. Chapter six, the guilt offering. And chapter seven, the sin offering. So the amount of space devoted to each sacrifice tells us what they're going to need more of. Sin offering, guilt offering, right? You're going to need to buckle up and listen to those ones because those are the ones you're going to be doing all the time, you sinners, you guilty people. Now, Leviticus is pretty repetitive, but we're going to read some of the instructions about the burn offering found in Leviticus 1. It says this in verse 3 of chapter 1. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer it a male without defect. You must present it at the tent entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. 
The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put the fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Did you notice a little interesting tidbit there? It is the offerer of the sacrifice who kills and slaughters the animal, not the priest. You want to offer something to God? You're going to have to get your hands dirty. Uh, flocks were family. You were going to put your hand on the head of an animal that you know, that you love, and you're going to slit the throat of that animal. Here at Prodigal Church today, um, the last Sunday of May, we have some goats here. And as people are walking into service, they're going to see the goats and get attached to the goats. And during the sermon, when I'm giving this sermon in front of Prodigal Church at 5445 North Palm Avenue in Fresno, um, I'm going to bring out this goat. Bring out a goat that people had made this connection with. And we'll demonstrate the, the, the personal nature of this kind of sacrifice, the seriousness of sin. You're not standing in front of the priest in the altar unless you're serious about your brokenness. If you're standing there with the priest and you're up to your elbows in blood, no one does this passively, right? You're serious and God is not interested in a passive pursuit of him. No, it takes intention. He, he wants all of us. He wants us to be all in. When you put your hand on the head of that animal, you confessed your sin. The Hebrew word here, uh, to, put, to place your hand on or to press your hand on, it's, it's, it's not just a, a subtle thing. No, no, it's, it's to lean on the sacrifice. You, you put your weight into it. There's weight behind it. You lean on the lamb. It was costly. It was personal. You knew this. You remember the birthday of this animal. You remember when it first came into the world and now you're there with the bloody knife in hand. You were part of this, this blood gurgling, violent sacrifice. And it was because of what you did, your guilt, your sin. This tells us the gravity of our sin and the remedy of it is serious. It's a matter of life and death. God provides a way. This means that God is able to dwell with the people of Israel. The law demands that it should be the best to give. You're not bringing your three-legged bull named tripod. No. No. No, it's, it, it, it says without blemish. You're bringing your best. Now, there's accommodations within the law. If you don't have cows to offer, there's sheep. And if there's no sheep, then you can offer birds. And if you don't have birds, you can offer grain. Not everyone has the same resources, but everyone can give the best that they have. Let's look briefly at the grain offering found in chapter two. It says this, when anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. The grain offering here is the minha. Uh, the minha, it, it was also a tribute to a king, a gift offered to a king to smooth relations. Okay, we're with you, we're yours. Here's the minha. Okay, you're willing to submit to that king. It's an offering of submission to God. And it said that we're to bring our, in the grain offering, the minha, the finest flour. Okay, this is um, some fine flour. 
okay? In your own pantry, you probably have some as well. Uh, each little individual grain is grinded down to the most fine, minute detail. Uh, a powerful machine is the one that grinded it for you. But in ancient Israel, if you wanted to have bread at a meal, you would pick the wheat, you would thresh it, and then you would grind it and grind it into flour. It was a painstakingly difficult process that took hours and hours, tons of labor. There's no machine that's gonna help you grind this wheat into flour. So what developed in that culture was a, was a usable daily standard, okay? A, a good enough. They get to the point where they're like, well, it's not perfect, but it's usable, <laughs> it's edible, it's not the best flour, but I've been at it for a while now, I gotta get to some other things. It's good enough. It is the usable daily standard. Daily flour in this culture had imperfections. There were kernels with specks, there were larger chunks, and it was fine. But to get the flour that we have today, well, it's hours and hours. You would pick out all of the imperfections. The fine flour becomes something of great value in the ancient world because of the time it took, the effort it took, the care and concern to create it. Fine flour was rarely ever used because it was so labor intensive. So in their culture, 3,500 years ago, it begins to represent purity, something unblemished, excellence. Fine flour is clean, fine flour is beautiful, fine flour is rare, and it is that fine flour that is to be offered in the grain offering. The minha, God says, I want the fine flour. I want excellence. God still wants your best. God still wants what you value, what we value. John, are you talking about money? Yes, okay. Flocks were finances back then. In chapters five and six of Leviticus, there is a monetary value attached to the sacrifice. God says, I want you to bring your ram and your checkbook. I want you to bring your goat and your debit card. Leviticus 27, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. In ancient Israel, the tithe was a tenth of all you had. Uh, now, today, uh, a tithe is still a tenth of all that you have. I bet you hoped that I was going to say something else there. Now, the word offering in Hebrew is uh, the word korban. It's the same word that means to draw near. There is this connection between our offering our sacrifice, our tithe, and drawing near to God. It is a giving over to God, a laying at the feet of God, something that we value, and say, God, this is yours. If anyone of you wishes to come near, then this is what you do, offering. This word, korban, it's, it's mentioned 146 times in Leviticus. So when you read the word offering or sacrifice, think come near to God, drawing near to God, korban. When you sacrifice, you draw near. 
Notice the connection in Hebrews to the, to the very first verse that we read today. Verse one of, of Hebrews chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near Korban to worship. Korban, sacrifice, offering, drawing near. Our tithe is a part of our worship, our drawing near to God. Now, why is there a need for all of these sacrifices? Can't we just leave the goats alone, right? When we mess up, there is this feeling that comes inside of us. You know it. I know it. Some of the words that we can use to describe this feeling, when we do something that we know we should not have done, uh, guilt, shame. I know that they're, those are two different things. They're distinct, but, but they're ways at getting at what we're describing, what we're feeling inside when we mess up. When I say those words, guilt, shame, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm referring to. When we do something wrong, there's this, this heaviness. There's this knot in our stomachs. There's that feeling in our gut. There's this anxiety begins to rise. There's this, what happens if people find out about this? And suddenly worry begins to dominate our thinking. When there's guilt and shame that rises within us, and when we do something that we know we shouldn't have done, we have this propensity to hide. Here's a a silly example of this, okay? A friend calls and they say, hey, I'm in your neighborhood. Hey, can I stop by? And I'm like, totally. And they're like, great. And I'm like, see you in a bit. And I look around my house and I begin to panic, right? So I hang up the phone, um, like apparently in 1985, I hang up the phone and I start cleaning everything in the house, right? I'm picking up clean clothes in the living room, throwing them in the dirty clothes, kicking kids' toys behind the couch, and in so doing, I also kick the dog. You're grabbing dishes, you're putting them in the closet, the doorbell rings, bing bong, and you go out there and you're just like, hey, what's up? It's, wh- what's up with you? Oh, nothing, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just, Normal day, you know, just a clean, normal day at my house, just like it always is, right? We hide, we hide our stuff, we hide our dirt. Now, we don't just do this with others when people come over, when they wanna stop by, no, no, we do it with God, right? This is the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? Uh, They did something they knew they shouldn't have done and then there's guilt and then there's shame and so they hide, they, first they cover themselves and then they hide from God. It is in our nature to hide. So we sin, then there's guilt, then there's shame, then we hide. Sin, guilt, shame, hide. Sin, guilt, shame, hide. You can relate. Well, that's because you're human. This cycle that begins to take place in our lives, the only thing we know how to do to get out of it is to try harder. But the more we try hard and then fail, the more it hurts and the more guilt and shame we experience. What are we to do? Well, in ancient Israel, you get your goat, okay? And you walk it through the village for all to see, okay? Nobody is wondering, what's John doing walking his goat? No, they're not wondering because they walked their goat two days ago because they're gonna be walking their goat later on that afternoon. There's no hiding. There's no 
whispering, oh, John's walking his goat. Means he must have messed up. No, no, there's, there's none of that. There's no weird looks. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. Imagine a community that lives with that kind of transparency. Now, is this what we see in the church today? Transparency, honesty, an openness, and a willingness to say that, hey, nobody has it all together, including us. We're all sinners. There's no shame. There's no judgment here. No, I wish that was like the church, right? Often in the church, we're the community that hides. We're the community that, that brings the guilt, that adds to the shame. The church is supposed to be like the people of God at Mount Sinai by moving past guilt and shame and finding freedom in God. But all too often, we embolden the same old cycle of sin, guilt, shame, hiding. The ancient Hebrews have something to teach us here, do they not? At some point, we need to stop and ask, who's more primitive and barbaric, us or them? I think they've got us on this one. They stopped hiding. Now, if you watched last week's sermon, uh, we mentioned briefly that the center of the chiastic structure in Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay, this is what's most important in Leviticus. And it was the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. It was and still is the only day on the, the Jewish calendar where Orthodox Jews fast for 25 hours a day. Why 25? Well, because they wanted to make sure that they did it the whole day. Every single hour mattered. It was the day that the high priest, once a year, were to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness and atonement for all the people of God. It was the biggest day of the year, but it wasn't celebratory. It was mournful. No one was walking around saying, Merry Yom Kippur. No, no, no. No, in English, this word atonement is three parts. at one mint. Okay, reconciliation. There were two parties and they were at odds with one another and one has wronged the other. Atonement is the process in which the two are made one at one mint. In Hebrew, it's kippur, to cover or to wipe out. Okay, uh, say you and I are at dinner and the check comes and you conveniently forgot your debit card or any cash. And I said, oh, don't worry, I've got you covered. Okay, that's, that's atonement, that's kippur. I've covered your debt. I've covered your failure to pay. And on the day of atonement in ancient Israel, the high priest would make sacrifices for himself, for his family, that is the other priests, and for the entire nation. He would get two male goats and present them before the Lord at the tent of meeting. And he is to cast lots for these goats, one for the Lord and one for the scapegoat. Okay, the high priest would then take the goat whose lot fell to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented to the Lord alive. And then the high priest would lay his hands on the head and confess the sins of the people onto this goat. And then the goat is then led as a scapegoat into the wilderness, never to be seen again. A way of carrying the sins of the people of God out of camp and into the abyss, the great beyond. Now, we still use the term scapegoat, a person who is blamed for wrongdoings or mistakes of others. And that makes sense in that 
The scapegoat bears the sin of the people as it goes off into the wilderness. Yom Kippur, one person could enter God's presence one day per year. Today, you and me and your neighbor and your mailman and your bank teller and your enemy and your uncle, we can all enter the presence of God whenever. And we can, our sins have been atoned for in Jesus. In Christ, we have access to God. This is why when Jesus dies on the cross and says it's finished, that the temple in the curtain, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Okay, that, that curtain divided the holy place and the most holy place. The place where the high priest could only enter once a year. And when Christ says it is finished, that temple ripped open in a way saying that no longer is it just one person once a year that has access to my presence. No, 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 the, court, the curtain is torn open. Everyone has access to my presence all the time. It's open for all. The same curtain is now ripped through Christ. No longer one person, one day a year, but for all of us. Now, as we close our time together, I want you to think back to those moments where you messed up, where you experienced that feeling in your gut, that hole in your stomach, that, that guilt, that shame for the things that, that you did. What are we to do with that in Jesus, through Jesus? We lay it all before him. And it's consumed by the love of God on that cross. You have access to him. Uh, you don't need to, to cut yourself or to harm yourself because of the bad things you did. You don't need to give more money because of the bad things you did. You don't need to do three good things to make up for that one bad thing. You just go to Jesus. And we are transformed in his presence. And we get this presence all the time. Don't take it for granted. Everything is Owen's mountain. Everything is the mountain of God. We always have access to Jesus and he calls us, he beckons us. He tries to woo us closer to him every day. Are we sensitive enough to hear his voice, to see the supernatural all around us? God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would live differently because of your holiness because of your sacrifice, because of your great love for us, God. So Lord, when we experience this guilt and this shame and these failures and these struggles, Lord, I pray that, that we find newness and atonement through your sacrifice in Jesus. We love you. Make us new. Change us from the inside out. In your name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, we continue our journey in You Lost Me at Leviticus, and we can't wait to be back in person or online next Sunday as summer begins. Uh, grace and peace.